0: Welcome back to 1001 Stories for the Road and Chapter 12 of Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. Chapter 12 It Was Dreadful in the Forest I have said, or perhaps I have not said, for my memory plays me sad tricks these days, that I glowed with pride when three such men as my comrades thanked me for having saved, or at least greatly helped, the situation as the youngster of the party, not merely in years but in experience, character, knowledge, and all that goes to make a man, I had been overshadowed from the first, and now I was coming into my own. I warmed at the thought, alas, for the pride which goes before a fall, that little glow of self-satisfaction, that added measure of self-confidence were to lead me on that very night to the most dreadful experience of my life, ending with a shock which turns my heart sick when I think of it. It came about in this way. I had been unduly excited by the adventure of the tree, and sleep seemed to be impossible. Summerlee was on guard, sitting hunched over our small fire, a quaint, angular figure, his rifle across his knees, and his pointed, goat-like beard wagging with each weary nod of his head. Lord John lay silent, wrapped in the South American poncho which he wore, while Challenger snored with a roll and rattle which reverberated through the woods. The full moon was shining brightly, and the air was crisply cold. What a night for a walk! And then, suddenly, came the thought, "'Why not?' "'Suppose I stole softly away. Suppose I made my way down to the central lake. Suppose I was back at breakfast with some record of the place.' would I not in that case be thought an even more worthy associate? Then, if Summerlee carried the day and some means of escape were found, we should return to London with first-hand knowledge of the central mystery of the plateau, to which I alone, of all men, would have penetrated. I thought of Gladys, with her. There are heroisms all round us. I seemed to hear her voice as she said it. I thought also of McCardle, What a three-column article for the paper! What a foundation for a career! A correspondentship in the next great war might be within my reach. I clutched at a gun, my pockets were full of cartridges, and parting the thorn bushes at the gate of our Zareba quickly slipped out. My last glance showed me the unconscious summerly, most futile of sentinels, still nodding away like a queer mechanical toy in front of the smoldering fire. I had not gone a hundred yards before I deeply repented my rashness. I may have said somewhere in this chronicle that I am too imaginative to be a really courageous man, but I have an overpowering fear of seeming afraid. This was the power which now carried me onwards. I simply could not slink back with nothing done. Even my comrades should not have missed me and should never know of my weakness "'there would still remain some intolerable self-shame in my own soul. "'And yet I shuddered at the position in which I found myself "'and would have given all I possessed at that moment "'to have been honorably free of the whole business. "'It was dreadful in the forest. "'The trees grew so thickly and their foliage spread so widely "'that I could see nothing of the moonlight "'save that here and there the high branches "'made a tangled filigree against the starry sky.' As the eyes became more used to the obscurity, one learned that there were different degrees of darkness among the trees, that some were dimly visible, while between and among them there were coal-black shadowed patches, like the mouths of caves, from which I shrank in horror as I passed. I thought of the despairing yell of the tortured Iguanodon, that dreadful cry, which had echoed through the woods. I thought, too, of the glimpse I had in the light of Lord John's torch of that bloated, warty, blood-slavering muzzle. Even now I was on its hunting ground. At any instant it might spring upon me from the shadows, this nameless and horrible monster. I stopped, and picking a cartridge from my pocket, I opened the breech of my gun. As I touched the lever, my heart leaped within me. It was the shotgun, not the rifle which I'd taken. Again the impulse to return swept over me. Here, surely, was a most excellent reason for my failure, one for which no one would think the less of me. But again the foolish pride fought against that very word. I could not, must not fail. After all, my rifle would probably have been as useless as a shotgun against such dangers I might meet out here. If I were to go back to camp to change my weapon... I could hardly expect to enter and to leave again without being seen. In that case there would be explanations, and any attempt would no longer be all my own. After a little hesitation, then, I screwed up my courage and continued upon my way, my useless gun under my arm. The darkness of the forest had been alarming, but even worse was the white, still flood of moonlight in the open glade of the Iguanodons. Hid among the bushes, I looked out at it. "'None of the great brutes were in sight. "'Perhaps the tragedy which had befallen one of them "'had driven them from their feeding ground. "'In the misty, silvery light, "'I could see no sign of any living thing. "'Taking courage, therefore, I slipped rapidly across it, "'and among the jungle on the farther side "'I picked up once again the brook which was my guide. "'Testing, testing, one, two. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to the lost world. It was a cheery companion, gurgling and chuckling as it ran, like a dear old trout stream in the west country where I fished at night in my boyhood. So long as I followed it down, I must come to the lake, and so long as I followed it back, I must come to the camp. Often I had to lose sight of it on account of the tangled brushwood, but I was always within earshot of its tinkle and splash. As I descended the slope, the woods became thinner, and bushes with occasional high trees took the place of the forest. I could make good progress, therefore, and I could see without being seen. I passed close to the pterodactyl swamp, and, as I did so, with a dry, crisp, leathery rattle of wings, one of those great creatures, was twenty feet at least from tip to tip, rose up from somewhere near me and soared into the air. As it passed across the face of the moon, the light shone clearly through the membranous wings, and it looked like a flying skeleton against the white, tropical radiance. I crouched low among the bushes, for I knew from past experience that with a single cry the creature could bring a hundred of its loathsome mates about my ears. It was not until it had settled again that I dared to steal onwards upon my journey. The night had been exceedingly still, but as I advanced, I became conscious of a low, rumbling sound, a continuous murmur, somewhere in front of me. This grew louder as I proceeded, until at last it was clearly quite close to me. When I stood still the sound was constant, so that it seemed to come from some stationary cause. It was like a boiling kettle, or the bubbling of some great pot. Soon I came upon the source of it, for in the center of a small clearing I found a lake, or a pool, rather, for it was not larger than the basin of the Trafalgar Square Fountain, of some black, pitch-like stuff, the surface of which rose and fell in great blisters of bursting gas. The air above it was shimmering with heat, and the ground round it was so hot that I could hardly bear to lay my hand on it. It was clear that the great volcanic outburst which had raised this strange plateau so many years ago had not yet entirely spent its forces. Blackened rocks and mounds of lava I had already seen everywhere peeping out from amid the luxuriant vegetation which draped them, but this asphalt pool in the jungle was the first sign that we had of actual existing activity on the slopes of the ancient crater. I had no time to examine it further, for I had need to hurry if I were to be back in camp in the morning. It was a fearsome walk, and one which will be with me so long as memory holds. In the great moonlight clearings I slunk along among the shadows on the margin. In the jungle I crept forward, stopping with a beating heart whenever I heard, as I often did, the crash of breaking branches as some wild beast went past. Now and then great shadows loomed up for an instant and were gone. Great, silent shadows which seemed to prowl upon padded feet. How often I stopped with the intention of returning? "'and yet every time my pride conquered my fear "'and sent me on again until my object should be attained. "'At last my watch showed that it was one in the morning. "'I saw the gleam of water amid the openings of the jungle, "'and ten minutes later I was among the reeds "'upon the borders of the central lake. "'I was exceedingly dry, "'so I lay down and took a long draft of its waters, "'which were fresh and cold. "'There was a broad pathway with many tracks upon it "'at the spot which I had found.' so that it was clearly one of the drinking places of the animals. Close to the water's edge, there was a huge isolated block of lava. Upon this I climbed, and lying on the top, I had an excellent view in every direction. The first thing which I saw filled me with amazement. When I described the view from the summit of the great tree, I said that on the further cliff I could see a number of dark spots, which appeared to be the mouths of caves. Now, as I looked up at the same cliff's, I saw disks of light in every direction, ruddy, clearly defined patches, like the portholes of a liner in the darkness. For a moment I thought it was the lava glow from some volcanic action, but this could not be so. Any volcanic action would surely be down in the hollow, and not high among the rocks. What then was the alternative? It was wonderful, and yet it was, and yet it must surely be. These ruddy spots must be the reflection of fires within the caves, fires which could only be lit by the hand of man. There were human beings, then, upon the plateau. How gloriously my expedition was justified! Here was news, indeed, for us to bear back with us to London. For a long time I lay and watched these red, quivering blotches of light. I suppose they were ten miles off from me, yet even at that distance one could observe how, from time to time, they twinkled or were obscured as someone passed before them. What would I not have given to be able to crawl up to them, to peep in, and to take back some word to my comrades as to the appearance and character of the race who lived in so strange a place? It was out of the question for the moment, and yet surely we could not leave the plateau until we had some definite knowledge upon the point. Lake Gladys, my own lake, lay like a sheet of quicksilver before me, with a reflected moon shining brightly in the center of it. It was shallow, for in many places I saw low sandbanks protruding above the water. Everywhere upon the still surface I could see signs of life, sometimes mere rings and ripples in the water, sometimes the gleam of a great silver-sided fish in the air, sometimes the arched, slate-colored back of some passing monster." Once upon a yellow sandbank I saw a creature like a huge swan with a clumsy body and a high flexible neck shuffling about on the margin. Presently it plunged in and for some time I could see the arched neck and darting head undulating over the water. Then it dived and I saw it no more. My attention was soon drawn away from these distant sights and brought back to what was going on at my very feet. Two creatures like large armadillos had come down to the drinking place and were squatting at the edge of the water, their long, flexible tongues like red ribbons shooting in and out as they lapped. A huge deer, with branching horns, a magnificent creature, which carried itself like a king, came down with its doe and two fawns and drank beside the armadillos. No such deer exist anywhere else upon earth, for the moose or elks which I have seen would hardly have reached its shoulders. Presently it gave a warning snort and was off with its family among the reeds while the armadillos also scuttled for shelter. A newcomer, a most monstrous animal, was coming down the path. For a moment I wondered where I could have seen that ungainly shape that arched back with triangular fringes along it, that strange bird-like head held close to the ground. And then it came back to me. It was the Stegosaurus, the very creature which Maple White had preserved in his sketchbook, and which had been the first object which arrested the attention of Challenger. There he was, perhaps the very specimen which the American artist had encountered. The ground shook beneath his tremendous weight, and his gulpings of water resounded through the still night. For five minutes he was so close to my rock that by stretching out my hand I could have touched the hideous waving hackles upon his back. "'Then he lumbered away, and was lost among the boulders. "'Looking at my watch, I saw that it was half-past two o'clock, "'and high time, therefore, that I started upon my homeward journey. "'There was no difficulty about the direction in which I should return, "'for all along I kept a little brook upon my left, "'and it opened into the central lake, "'within a stone's throw of the boulder upon which I had been lying. "'I set off, therefore, in high spirits, "'for I felt that I had done good work, and was bringing back a fine budget of news for my companions. Foremost of all, of course, were the sight of fiery caves and the certainty that some troglodytic race inhabited them. But besides that, I could speak from the experience of the central lake. I could testify that it was full of strange creatures, and I had seen several land forms of primeval life which we had not before encountered. I reflected as I walked that few men in the world could have spent a stranger night or added more to human knowledge in the course of it. I was plodding up the slope, turning these thoughts over in my mind, and had reached a point which may have been halfway to home, when my mind was brought back to my own position by a strange noise behind me. It was something between a snore and a growl, low, deep, and exceedingly menacing. Some strange creature was evidently near me, but nothing could be seen so I hastened more rapidly upon my way. I had traversed half a mile or so when suddenly the sound was repeated, still behind me, but louder and more menacing than before. My heart stood still within me as it flashed across me that the beast, whatever it was, must surely be after me. My skin grew cold, and my hair rose at the thought that these monsters should tear each other to pieces was part of the strange struggle for existence. But that they should turn upon modern man, that they should deliberately track and hunt down the predominant human, was a staggering and fearsome thought. I remembered again the blood-beslobbered face which we'd seen in the glare of Lord John's torch, like some horrible vision from the deepest circle of Dante's hell. With my knees shaking beneath me, I stood and glared with starting eyes, "'down the moonlit path which lay behind me. "'All was quiet as in a dream landscape. "'Silver clearings and the black patches of the bushes. "'Nothing else could I see. "'Then, from out of the silence, imminent and threatening, "'there came once more that low, throaty croaking, "'far louder and closer than before. "'There could no longer be a doubt. "'Something was on my trail and was closing in upon me every minute.' I stood like a man paralyzed, still staring at the ground which I had traversed. Then, suddenly, I saw it. There was movement among the bushes at the far end of the clearing which I had just traversed. A great, dark shadow disengaged itself and hopped out into the clear moonlight. I say hopped advisedly, for the beast moved like a kangaroo, springing along in an erect position upon its powerful hind legs, while its front ones were held bent in front of it. It was of enormous size and power, like an erect elephant, but its movements, in spite of its bulk, were exceedingly fast. For a moment, as I saw its shape, I hoped that it was an iguanodon, which I knew to be harmless. But ignorant as I was, I soon saw that this was a very different creature. Instead of the gentle, deer-shaped head of the great three-toed leaf-eater, this beast had a broad, squat, toad-like face like that which had alarmed us in our camp. His ferocious cry and the horrible energy of his pursuit both assured me that this was surely one of the great flesh-eating dinosaurs, most terrible beasts which have ever walked this earth. As the huge brute loped along it dropped forward upon its forepaws and brought its nose to the ground every twenty yards or so. It was smelling out my trail. Sometimes, for an instant, it was at fault. Then it would catch it up again, "'and come bounding swiftly along the path I had taken. "'Even now, when I think of that nightmare, "'the sweat breaks out upon my brow. "'What could I do? "'My useless fowling piece was in my hand. "'What help could I get from that? "'I looked desperately round for some rock or tree, "'but I was in a bushy jungle "'with nothing higher than a sapling within sight, "'while I knew that the creature behind me "'could tear down an ordinary tree "'as though it were a reed.' My only possible chance lay in flight. I could not move swiftly over the rough, broken ground, but as I looked round me in despair, I saw a well marked, hard beaten path which ran across in front of me. We had seen several of the sort, the runs of various wild beasts, during our expeditions. Along this I could perhaps hold my own, for I was a fast runner and in excellent condition. Flinging away my useless gun, I set myself to do such a half-mile as I'd never done before or since. My limbs ached, my chest heaved, I felt that my throat would burst for want of air, and yet with that horror behind me, I ran and ran and ran. At last I paused, hardly able to move. For a moment I thought that I'd thrown him off. The path lay still behind me, and then suddenly, with a crashing and a rending, a thudding of giant feet, and a panting of monster lungs, the beast was upon me once more. He was at my very heels. I was lost. Madman that I was to linger so long before I fled. Up to then he had hunted my scent, and his movement was slow. But he had actually seen me as I started to run. From then onwards he had hunted by sight, for the path showed him where I had gone. Now as he came round the curve he was springing in great bounds. The moonlight shone upon his huge projecting eyes, the row of enormous teeth in his open mouth, and the gleaming fringe of claws upon his short, powerful forearms. With a scream of terror, I turned and rushed wildly down the path. Behind me, the thick, gasping breathing of the creature sounded louder and louder. His heavy footfall was beside me. Every instant I expected to feel his grip upon my back, and then suddenly there came a crash. I was falling through space, and everything beyond was darkness and rest. As I emerged from my unconsciousness, which could not, I think, have lasted more than a few minutes, I was aware of a most dreadful and penetrating smell. Putting out my hand in the darkness, I came upon something which felt like a huge lump of meat, while my other hand closed upon a large bone. Up above me, There was a circle of starlit sky which showed me that I was lying at the bottom of a deep pit. Slowly I staggered to my feet and felt myself all over. I was stiff and sore from head to foot, but there was no limb which could not move, no joint which could not bend. As the circumstances of my fall came back into my confused brain, expecting to see that dreadful head silhouetted against the paling sky. There was no sign of the monster, however, nor could I hear any sound from above. I began to walk slowly round, therefore, feeling in every direction to find out what this strange place could be into which I had been so opportunely precipitated. It was, as I have said, a pit, with sharply sloping walls and a level bottom about twenty feet across. This bottom was littered with great gobbets of flesh, most of which were in the last state of putridity. The atmosphere was poisonous and horrible. After tripping and stumbling over these lumps of decay, I came suddenly against something hard, and found that an upright post was firmly fixed in the center of the hollow. It was so high that I could not reach the top of it with my hand, and it appeared to be covered with grease. Suddenly I remembered that I had a tin box of wax vestas in my pocket. Striking one of them, I was able at last to form some opinion of this place into which I had fallen. There could be no question as to its nature, now that I could see it, it was a trap, made by the hand of man. The post in the center, some nine feet long, was sharpened at the upper end, and was black with the stale blood of the creatures which had been impaled upon it. The remains scattered about were fragments of the victims, which had been cut away in order to clear the stake for the next one who might blunder in. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to the lost world. I remember the challenger had declared that man could not exist upon the plateau, since with his feeble weapons, he couldn't hold his own against the monsters who roamed over it. But now, it was clear enough how it could be done. In their narrow-mouthed caves, the natives, whoever they might be, had refuges into which the huge saurians could not penetrate, while with their developed brains they were capable of setting such traps covered with branches, across the paths which marked the run of the animals, as would destroy them in spite of all their strength and activity. Man was always the master. The sloping wall of the pit was not difficult for an active man to climb, but I hesitated long before I trusted myself within reach of the dreadful creature which had so nearly destroyed me. How did I know that he was not lurking in the nearest clump of bushes, waiting for my reappearance? I took heart, however as I recalled a conversation between Challenger and Summerlee upon the habits of the great Saurians. Both were agreed that the monsters were practically brainless, that there was no room for reason in their tiny cranial cavities, and that if they had disappeared from the rest of the world, it was assuredly on account of their own stupidity, which made it impossible for them to adapt themselves to changing conditions. To lie in wait for me now would mean that the creature had appreciated what had happened to me. "'and this in turn would argue some power connecting cause and effect. "'Surely it was more likely that a brainless creature "'acting solely by vague predatory instinct "'would give up the chase when I disappeared "'and, after a pause of astonishment, "'would wander away in search of some other prey?' "'I clambered to the edge of the pit and looked over. "'The stars were fading, the sky was whitening, "'and the cold wind of morning blew pleasantly upon my face. "'I could see or hear nothing of my enemy.' Slowly I climbed out and sat for a while upon the ground, ready to spring back into my refuge if any danger should appear. Then, reassured by the absolute stillness and by the growing light, I took my courage in both hands and stole back along the path which I had come. Some distance down it I picked up my gun and shortly afterwards struck the brook which was my guide. So with many a frightened backward glance, I made for home. And suddenly there came something to remind me of my absent companions. In the clear, still morning air, there sounded far away the sharp, hard note of a single rifle shot. I paused and listened, but there was nothing more. For a moment I was shocked at the thought that some sudden danger might have befallen them, but then a simpler and more natural explanation came to my mind. It was now broad daylight. No doubt my absence had been noticed. They had imagined that I was lost in the woods. "'and had fired this shot to guide me home. "'It is true that we'd made a strict resolution against firing, "'but if it seemed to them that I might be in danger, "'they would not hesitate. "'It was for me now to hurry on as fast as possible, "'and so to reassure them. "'I was weary and spent, "'so my progress was not so fast as I wished, "'but at last I came into regions which I knew. "'There was the swamp of the pterodactyls upon my left, There in front of me was the glade of the Iguanodons. Now I was in the last belt of trees which separated me from Fort Challenger. I raised my voice in a cheery shout to allay their fears. But no answering greeting came back to me. My heart sank at that ominous stillness. I quickened my pace into a run. The Zareba rose before me even as I had left it. But the gate was open. I rushed in. In the cold morning light, It was a fearful sight which met my eyes. Our effects were scattered in wild confusion over the ground. My comrades had disappeared, and close to the smoldering ashes of our fire, the grass was stained crimson with a hideous pool of blood. I was so stunned by this sudden shock that for a time I must have nearly lost my reason. I have a vague recollection, as one remembers a bad dream, of rushing about through the woods all round the empty camp calling wildly for my companions. No answer came back from the silent shadows. The horrible thought that I might never see them again, that I might find myself abandoned all alone in that dreadful place, with no possible way of descending into the world below, that I might live and die in that nightmare country, drove me to desperation. I could have torn my hair and beaten my head in my despair. Only now did I realize how I had learned to lean upon my companions upon the serene self-confidence of Challenger, and upon the masterful, humorous coolness of Lord John Roxton. Without them, I was like a child in the dark, helpless and powerless. I did not know which way to turn, or what I should do first. After a period, during which I sat in bewilderment, I set myself to try and discover what sudden misfortune could have befallen my companions. The whole disordered appearance of the camp showed that there had been some sort of attack, and the rifle shot no doubt marked the time when it had occurred. that there should have been only one shot showed that it had been all over in an instant. The rifles still lay upon the ground, and one of them, Lord John's, had an empty cartridge in the breech. The blankets of Challenger and of Summerley beside the fire suggested that they' had been asleep at the time. The cases of ammunition and of food were scattered about in a wild litter. "'together with our unfortunate cameras and plate-carriers, "'but none of them were missing. "'On the other hand, all the exposed provisions, "'and I remembered that there were a considerable quantity of them, "'were gone. "'They were animals, then, and not natives, "'who had made the inroad, "'for surely the latter would have left nothing behind. "'But if animals, or some single terrible animal, "'then what had become of my comrades?' "'A ferocious beast would surely have destroyed them "'and left their remains. "'It is true that there was one hideous pool of blood "'which told of violence. "'Such a monster as had pursued me during the night "'could have carried away a victim as easily as a cat would a mouse. "'In that case the others would have followed in pursuit, "'but then they would assuredly have taken their rifles with them. "'The more I tried to think it out with my confused and weary brain, "'the less I could find any plausible explanation.' I searched round in the forest, but could see no tracks which could help me to a conclusion. Once I lost myself, and it was only by good luck and after an hour of wandering that I found the camp once more. Suddenly a thought came to me and brought some little comfort to my heart. I was not absolutely alone in the world. Down at the bottom of the cliff and within call of me was waiting the faithful Zambo. I went to the edge of the plateau and looked over, and sure enough he was squatting among his blankets beside his fire in his little camp. But to my amazement, a second man was seated in front of him. For an instant my heart leaped for joy, as I thought that one of my comrades had made his way safely down. But a second glance dispelled that hope. The rising sun shone red upon the man's skin. He was an Indian. I shouted loudly and waved my handkerchief, "'Presently Zambo looked up, waved his hand, and turned to ascend the pinnacle. "'In a short time he was standing close to me "'and listening with deep distress to the story which I told him. "'Devil got them for sure, Massa Malone,' said he. "'You got into the devil's country, saw, and he'd take you all to himself. "'You take advice, Massa Malone. "'Come down quick, else he get you as well.' "'And how can I come down, Zambo?' You get creepers from trees, Massa Malone. Throw them over here. I make fast to this stump. And so you have a bridge. We have thought of that. There are no creepers which could bear us. Send for ropes, Massa Malone. Who can I send? And where? Send to Indian villages, sir. Plenty hide rope in Indian village. Indian down below. Send him. Who is he? One of our Indians. Other ones beat him and take away his pay. He come back to us, ready now to take the letter, bring rope, anything. To take a letter? Why not? Perhaps he might bring help. But in any case he would ensure that our lives were not spent for nothing and that news of all that we had won for science should reach our friends at home. I had two completed letters already waiting. I would spend the day in writing a third which would bring my experiences absolutely up to date. The Indian could bear this back to the world. I ordered Zambo, therefore, to come again in the evening, and I spent my miserable and lonely day in recording my own adventures of the night before. I also drew up a note to be given to any white merchant or captain of a steamboat whom the Indian could find, imploring them to see that the ropes were sent to us, since our lives must depend upon it. These documents I threw to Zambo in the evening, and also my purse, which contained three English sovereigns. Three, these were to be given to the Indian, and he was promised twice as much if he returned with the ropes. So now you will understand, my dear Mr. McArdle, how this communication reaches you, and you will also know the truth, in case you never hear again from your unfortunate correspondent. Tonight I am too weary and too depressed to make my plans." Tomorrow I must think out some way by which I shall keep in touch with this camp and yet search round for any traces of my unhappy friends. Thanks for joining us for chapter 12 of The Lost World by Arthur Conan Doyle. Stay tuned next Sunday night at 8 p.m. for chapter 13, a sight which I shall never forget. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road Please do leave us a review, especially Apple listeners. We would appreciate that very much. I hope all of you are enjoying this tremendous classic story. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be back next week.